welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. This week, we've got 321 Go with Cosmo Macero. Then, Tom O'Neill interviews Tom Croswell of Tough Health Plan. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom and I talk about the politics of reopening the country. All right, we're back with another remote edition of 321 Go, joined as always by Cayenne Isaacson. The official voice of OA on air. Kyan, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Very well. Very well. Just uh, grinding it out. Plugging through. Another week. Keeping it moving. <laughs> keep, keep it moving. Um, all right. Uh, good stuff to talk about this week. Let's start with Nike. Um, uh, I was reading a couple of stories about Nike and Lululemon, both of which, uh, you know, uh, among the top apparel brands, in America, uh, both of which, you know, uh, are, having, are working their way through this uh, and, and seeing significant negative impact. However, uh, Nike still moving ahead, being the corporate citizen that it, uh, I think, has been known for in the past, donating, what is it, 30,000 pairs of shoes to frontline healthcare workers? Yes. So 30,000 pairs of shoes to health systems and hospitals in Chicago, L.A., Memphis, New York City and within the VA, which, you know, as you said, is really in keeping with their brand of doing the right thing. And what they're saying is is effort by message. The effort is led by messages of gratitude. And, uh, you know, I think everyone's been trying to figure out how do we properly say thank you to these people who are really putting their lives on the line every day to care for patients. And this is one way that, you know, they felt they could do that. Yeah, no, it's, it's a terrific gesture and a good move. It, it also is, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, I think, um, uh, you know, a good, uh, a good marketing initiative at a time when you're thinking, okay, you know, what, what can we do here to be productive? We're not, we're not, our sales are going to be down, although we have very strong, they have a very strong digital presence and uh and, and uh, fulfillment capabilities so they're still selling lots of product but you know what's what's a relevant marketing thing we could do um and, and they maybe they didn't think of it this way they, they probably didn't but i think it's true <clears throat> you put that much product out into the marketplace for people to <clears throat> to have it, it, it's uh it's going to have a positive impact long term i think right you've got a product mm-hmm. out uh and it's going to it's going to help create demand while also uh, you know, really supporting and serving uh, tens of thousands of healthcare workers uh, who, you know, spend 12 hours a day on their feet. Yeah, and I'm sure it also is developing some new loyal customers, right? You know, how many of these people after this are going to say, you know what, I'm going to buy Nike? Um, and that's that's certainly not a bad thing. Uh, in addition, Converse, which is a subsidiary, has donated more than 2,600 shoes uh, to hospital and healthcare workers in Boston, as well as food service workers. Um, and, you know, Nike has had this ability to just come out with really smart ideas and ads and, and, and programs all along. And this is not the first time we've talked about them on our podcast. Um, earlier in the pandemic um, back in March, they had this really creative social media um, and ad campaign about encouraging people to play inside and kind of tugging at the heartstrings of, have you always wanted to play for the world and on a world stage? Now's the time to do it by 
by playing inside and, you know, posting your content um, online and just how smart, um, but also coming from just a really good place too. Yeah. I agree. Just one more point on that, not to belabor it, but think about it. 30,000 healthcare workers. Um, that's a pretty good um, <clears throat> sort of a, uh, a you know, a pretty good move toward establishing this product as this is the absolute preferred go-to uh, favorite uh, shoe for healthcare workers, right? You get, uh, you get that in, into that many consumers' hands. Well, guess what? There's 17 million healthcare workers in the United States. So there's a big upside there. There's a market. Um, and it's also, and it begins with this terrific gesture by Nike. It's a good move. Absolutely. All right, Cayenne, um, you know, a lot of our clients are doing interesting and important work uh, uh, related to or, or, or undertaking initiatives related to uh, uh, the pandemic and responding and reacting and to getting through the crisis. Uh, our, our OA newsletter uh, talks about some of that this month. Um, what do we got in there? Yeah, I would encourage people uh, to go find it on our website or social media. Uh, there's a lot of really good stuff in there, you know. We have the, I think, the pleasure and honor of working with some really great companies uh, throughout New England, uh, many of whom have really stepped up and found ways to be innovative um, in this period of COVID-19 uh, or kind of change tracks and trajectories as needed to respond to needs of the community. Um, and it really varies from everything from businesses like AIS or Analogic, um, who are making masks, donating masks, using their manufacturing uh, facilities to do what's necessary to support the community, um, colleges and, and universities who are doing their part to serve their communities, house students, um, you know, Anna Maria is one of them, Unions who are who are stepping forward, nonprofit organizations. Um, I could go through them all, but it would take probably all of our time. Um, but it's a little bit of everything, and I think it's a really great opportunity. I think it was fun for us to put together to say, you know, thank you and honor the clients that we have the privilege of working with, uh, who are stepping up and doing the right thing right now. And as we have said, it's you know, right now is more important than ever that we're all leaning on each other and supporting the communities in which we live and looking around and saying, what do we have to contribute? That's terrific. You mentioned uh, a bunch of different clients. I'm familiar with a, with a few or, or, or several. Uh, one in particular, just because I've been working on this with you, AIS, um, this week launching a major program nationwide, Sew the Masks. Um, which is designed to, uh, you know, uh, recruit people, sewing enthusiasts around the, the region, as well as companies to support the effort to get masks, high quality masks created and donated. That's a terrific program. Uh, so the mask.com is one. Uh, but boy, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, companies have recognized quickly that uh, they're needed to step in and really help uh, in this effort uh, to help manage, uh, manage us through the pandemic. Um, how do people, how, again, how do people see that newsletter? So the newsletter is uh, available on our, our website. Uh, it's also available on our all of our social media channels. So Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. 
um, and go take a look because, you know, in addition to the companies who have really switched gears, so to speak, we've got so many of these nonprofit groups and coalitions who have really just been doing what they've been doing all along, um, which is providing support for, you know, the constituents and citizens that they serve, whether that's, um, the homeless coalitions, we have Mass Law Reform Institute, who is just doing incredible work around social justice issues, law firms. I mean, there's so much. So people should definitely go go take a look. And um, we're it was our honor to really brag about our clients uh, this week. Excellent. All right. The website, O'NeillAndTheSoch.com. Uh, also on uh, across all of your uh, favorite social media platforms. All right, Kayanne, thanks. And finally, uh, uh, a number of states uh, around the U.S. already fairly underway in uh, reopening their shutdown economies at different stages. Massachusetts uh, moving slowly and deliberately and and, and carefully, but there is a a pretty concrete plan unveiled by the governor, uh, Governor Baker, this this past week, a staged plan, a staged uh, reopening over time. Um, And... Depending on who you talk to, some people feel like this is uh, uh, the right approach. Some people think it's too fast. Some people think it's way too slow. Either way, there is a plan to do this. Uh, and I think that there there may be among some uh, this notion that, oh, you flick a switch, you reopen, and we're back to normal. That hasn't really been the experience in other parts of the world. We'll talk about a couple uh, that that have reopened after significant shutdowns. Wuhan, the province of Wuhan in China, 11 million people. It's, it's, it's bigger than most U.S. cities. Um, and, and, and really where the coronavirus essentially uh, emerged from. And, and they've had tremendous difficulty after ending their lockdown and, and really restarting. Uh, businesses opened, recognized that people were not going back to all of their habits in the same way right away or or, or were being prevented from doing that. And after a few days, they had to shut down. Um, There's a lot of of complications there uh, in recovering and reopening uh, and and, and not a situation where you just go back to life as normal right away. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing in other areas of the world, and I think that we probably will see in other areas of the country, is that too fast, too soon causes the need to go backwards. Um, you know, I think the slow and more phased reopening seems to be the safer way to do things. Um, and Governor Baker has been very clear that initial and, and Mayor Walsh, that initial steps will be taken. And if we start to see a spike in cases as a result at any point in this phased in approach, we'll go back a phase. Um, so, you know, it also is relying on people to use common sense and good judgment. Um, And people may feel a lot of different ways about having to wear a mask or not being able to go places. But at the end of the day, you know, not to sound a little cheesy, but you're doing this for other people just as much as you're doing it for yourself, if not more. And that's what we need to be thinking about. Um, You know, in South Korea and Seoul, they, they opened back up and quickly saw clusters of positive cases pop up. One being a young man in his 20s who went out to a bar. Uh, He wasn't showing any symptoms. 
later tested positive, and as a result, infected a large cluster of people. Um, that's, that's problematic and certainly not what we want to be seeing. Um, and those cautionary tales, I think, are ones that I'm sure are and should be informing our leaders here in the United States about how we do this. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, yeah, and as it happens, small neighborhood business, local business, medium-sized companies, they're, you know, they're the ones being potentially hit the most. They're the ones who are at most risk. Um, Main Street America has taken a tremendous brunt of this economic impact and uh, and therefore are, are among the most eager to return or resume life uh, as close or in some way as we were before, you know, the, uh, before March uh, of this year. And, I, you know, I don't know that that's going to happen right away or even adequately over a period of uh, several months uh, between the, a combination of the phased approach and how quickly people go back to um, the uh, shopping and spending and buying and traveling habits uh uh, that they had. I, I think, you know, it's one of those, uh, a, a person is sane, but people are crazy. What's, I don't know what the uh, expression is, but that herd mentality, I think is where we're going to face some issues. And people are, again, as I said, it's, we've got to be smart. We're going to have to be patient. And, you know, some of these smaller businesses that have a smaller footprint too, uh, it may be that we're looking at not everyone goes in at one time that you limit the amount of people in your store at any given time. But just like grocery shopping or anywhere else, it's also going to be incumbent upon all of us as citizens to continue to practice social distancing and do all of those things so that we can keep these businesses open once they have the opportunity to do so. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Cayenne, thanks very much. Another good conversation. That's going to do it for another edition of 321GO. This program is recorded remotely from multiple locations where we are individually isolating during the pandemic. I'm Cosmo Macero. Talk to you next time. Vice President at O'Neill and Associates, and I'm here with Tom O'Neill. And we have with us Thomas Croswell, President and CEO of Tufts Health Plan, to talk with us about how the company is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Tom Croswell. Thank you. Good to be here. Let me join in and welcome you, Tom. This is Tom O'Neill. It's great to have you. Good to hear your voice, Tom. Interesting times, aren't they, huh? They sure are. With the coronavirus. anything like it. Incredible. So what, what are the changes of your membership in behavior as we, as we go through this pandemic? Well, I think uh, we're certainly seeing um, a couple of things. One, um, in some respects, less activity with us as a health plan, because as you know, uh, kind of discretionary care has been pretty much suspended. So people are calling us less often with questions related to that. Uh, but we're also seeing more activity as they have questions around the coronavirus 
um, their insurance coverage, and of course, you know, concerns about their their general health. So it's been both, um, you know, some changes in uh, less interaction, but um, certainly a lot more concern and more contact around the coronavirus. Yeah, there was a couple of fascinating stories in the newspapers this week about people opting beyond the electoral, the uh, the elected surgeries, but staying away from the ERs and the hospitals when they're feeling ill out of fear. Yeah, and I think that's a very real concern. We certainly don't want people who have, um, you know, legitimate um, health needs to stay away and have those um, needs become more acute and um, and more threatening. Um, Tell us about the uh, the health plan, Tom. And, and I should disclose to people that I'm on your board at the Tufts Health Plan, and I'm the chair of the of the Tufts Health Plan Foundation. So I want to disclose that early on into this interview. Tell us more about the plan. Well, I think, you know, for us and for everyone, things are moving very quickly, um, day by day, and sometimes even hour by hour. Um, one important aspect of this work is staying current on health information coming out of the, the CDC, the World Health Organization, and the local governments and departments of health in the states where we serve our members. We put in place a variety of new policies to help make it easier for our members to access coronavirus testing and treatment. And just as some examples, we are now waiving treatment costs for members suffering from the coronavirus, including co-pays, deductibles, and co-insurance. We're also waiving costs for testing and counseling and removing prior authorization requirements for providers to provide treatment. And we've also eliminated out-of-pocket costs for all types of telehealth visits, which have really exploded in the last few weeks. Our members can also now refill their prescription medications early before their current uh, fill is empty. And beyond those specific changes in, in health plan policies, I've heard many stories from our nurse care managers on how we're supporting our aging and vulnerable members in many other ways, from delivering uh, prescriptions to older members' homes for those who don't want to or can't leave their house, to helping young families find diapers and baby formula. That's part of the work we do every day to support our members, not just during this pandemic, but it's obviously especially important now. Tom, let me ask you, is, is that in, indicative of the industry or is, is, that, uh, is, is that just good, you know, uh, leadership coming out of the top cell plan? Are you being well, replicated? Is the industry yeah, doing it? Yeah, I think, um, you know, certainly here in Massachusetts and I think, um, and I think nationally, uh, health plans are trying to do everything they can to support their members' needs and, um, you know, looking hard at anything that we um, that we do that could, in a situation like this, could uh, pose a complication or a barrier for, for people. So, um, you know, I think we're all trying really hard. Um, it's really, um, you know, beyond health plan leadership, it's really been uh, great for me to see how our uh, rank and file employees have really responded to this and, and um, really taking it on themselves to try to help figure out ways to make life easier for folks as, as they go through this. Is that type of thing coming back to you from the providers as well as from the employer base in your membership? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We had a uh, webcast recently with uh, a number of providers here in Massachusetts where, you know, the purpose was to make sure they understood the actions we were taking to um, to help uh, streamline uh, access to care and make, um, you know, the lives of both uh, our members and providers easier. And we got very positive feedback in terms of the information that we've made available and the steps we've taken to try to, uh, again, make make things easier and simpler. Tough Health Plan is like everybody else in Massachusetts. Uh, they're working remotely. So how is the functionality of the of the plan working during this pandemic with people? Uh, really, remarkably well. Um, fortunately, we took a number of actions a few years ago in response to bad winter weather to uh, enable us to uh, have our employees work remotely. So we put in place a lot of technology supports, uh, additional training, a whole host of actions to better enable us to continue to function as a health plan without people needing to come into the office. Um, so at this point, and for several weeks now, we've had only uh, a few essential folks uh, report into our offices and um, the vast majority of our folks are working quite effectively uh, online um, and um, continuing to serve our members. Tom, you ought to talk as well about the Tufts Health Plan Foundation. It's been very generous, but been providing leadership there as well in giving at least two tranches of money out to fill the needs that are, that are cropping up due to the virus. Yes, um, well, as, as you well know, Tom, the primary focus of the um, Tufts Health Plan Foundation is healthy aging. Um, so in the context of this current crisis, um, in addition to its normal activity, funding community organizations, um, our foundation has committed a million dollars to nonprofit organizations in the states we serve, which is Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, and Connecticut. Um, committed an extra million dollars uh, to support older people affected by the coronavirus outbreak. We did that in uh, two tranches, uh, as you indicated, the, the most recent um, uh, uh, funds will be going out very shortly. Um, and the organizations that we selected for funding are on the front line of this pandemic. And um, across the board are experiencing an unprecedented, unprecedented demand for uh, services. So we want to do everything we can to support those kinds of organizations. You know, um, you, I'm sorry, but you, you talked earlier about uh, telehealth and the capabilities of telehealth and how they've played a real role here while this pandemic has been underway. Talk a little more about it, will you, and, and how, your, how your benefits have changed because of it? Sure. Um, well, I think as you know, you've all read, uh, the, this pandemic is changing the way uh, some care can be delivered um, as people are trying to avoid going into doctor's offices. Um, and um, so telehealth has really emerged um, as an alternate means to uh, provide effective care. And I think it's actually likely to stay that way even after the threat starts, starts to subside. Um, we've really seen an explosion in the use of telehealth for our members, not only for potential um, coronavirus uh, diagnoses, but also for other care, ranging from behavioral health to, to well visits. Um, 
Telehealth allows our members to access care in a timely and convenient way, uh, eliminating all the physical barriers of care and providing ex an experience that in many instances is simpler and less stressful than going to a doctor's office. Again, particularly during this time when people are very concerned about coronavirus exposure. Tom, talk about other transformative things that you think might come because of the epidemic to healthcare and, and to your industry in particular. Um, well, I think, um, you know, we've touched upon a couple of them. I think that the way that people access care um, is going to uh, continue to change uh, going forward. Telehealth is one example of that. Um, and the way that we provide services to our, our folks um, is going to be different in that, um, you know, electronic uh, virtual means of providing support for our members um, is, is, is going to change. Uh, there'll be, I, I'm confident, fewer phone calls, more electronic interchange with our members, uh, which is going to demand that we continue to invest in upgrading our capabilities for being able to support people in a digital way. Um, so I think, um, you know, just from a um, kind of a platform standpoint, whether it's actually in the delivery of care or in uh, us supporting our members uh, as a health plan, then kind of the fundamental um, way that we do business is going to change. Um, we're certainly, um, you're going to see fewer people coming uh, from our own employees. Um, even when we kind of get the all clear for people to come back to work, I think we're certainly going to see people that um, have grown accustomed working at home. They found it productive. It's worked for us, um, not only for the employees, but for the company. And I think um, it's going to change really the, the um, dispersion of our workforce from um, what historically has been um, you know, people at the office to people in a much more distributed fashion. Um, I think all potentially for the good. Um, um, this will really result in kind of more flexible ways to uh, to support our members. Um, but it's going to take some time, and uh, we're going to need to continue to invest in those kind of capabilities. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, I think the the world knew before the the pandemic hit that. The Tufts Health Plan was was doing a merger with the Harvard Pilgrim Health Plan as well. How's that going, and and how do you see any changes because of the pandemic to those talks or to the other side of what the the new code will look like? Um, you know, our, certainly our response to the coronavirus um, uh, crisis has been an all hands kind of situation. Um, but our activities related to the combination with Harvard Pilgrim have continued as well. Um, we continue to work with regulators and uh, are still anticipating approval and close sometime in the third quarter uh, of this year. So it's, you know, it's been uh, uh, work on top of um, the work that we've had to do uh, to uh, respond to the coronavirus um, crisis. But thus far, we've been able to manage it uh, quite well. And as I say, we're, we continue to believe we're on track for closure sometime in the third quarter. That's great. Um, the, the the leadership of the industry has really been something to watch. It's been responsive to uh, Governor Baker and some of his demands. Well, I think, um, you know, in general, um, I think the, the health insurance industry has um, had a strong response to the crisis. I think everyone's doing 
all that uh, we can to support each other. Um, certainly we are working with our federal and local advocacy groups uh, advocating for support in a variety of ways. Um, uh, you know, for employers, we're advocating for federal financial assistance for the payment of health insurance premiums so employees can remain covered. We're doing that um, as Tufts Health Plan. We're also doing it in concert with the other health plans in Massachusetts and nationally through our National Trade Association. Um, along the same lines for individuals who purchase their health plans on an exchange like the connector here in Massachusetts, we're advocating for assistance to lower the cost uh, of premiums. Um, you know, our plan serves everyone regardless of age or circumstance. So our goal is to make sure that those who need access to health care can get it. Uh, here in Massachusetts, I fear the progress we've made um, in um, obtaining health care coverage for virtually the entire population uh, will be threatened if we don't respond by looking for ways uh, through government assistance to help people continue to pay their premiums and and um, obtain coverage through the through the commercial market. I've enjoyed this conversation. I, I must tell you that um, for the, for all the while that I've been on the board of Tough Cell Plan, the one constant has been the change that the industry continues to endure. Um, it, it just never stops. And now with this, and now with this COVID-19 pandemic, it has forced the change and been more transformative than one could ever imagine or believe. Um, you know, I, I thank you for, for coming on the show. I thank you for, for your comments. And uh, it, it gives everybody an opportunity to just get a, a, a kind of a blink into the world of Tough Self Plan and its leadership. Tom, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank, thank you, Tom. Been a pleasure talking to you. Okay, my friend. Thank you. Suzanne, thank you. Thank you. Hi, Diane. Hi, Tom. How are you? Doing fine, healthy, and safe, um, hunkering That's down important. in my house. I hope you are. I am. Let's so welcome to week. Weeks are just kind of flooding by. I, oh, I don't. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think we've been doing this remotely for the last two months. Is that uh, right? We have been working remotely for about two months. Yes, we have been doing our podcast remotely um, from you know our our homes and on opposite sides of the country now for about six weeks. I think. So, but yeah, to your early, it's all a blur. The days, the days blend, the weeks blend, but, um, but healthy, healthy and, and safe anyway, is um, really important. Healthy and safe are really kind of tantamount to what it's all about. Um, anyway, I, I do think though, that there are so many, you know, there are so many people out there with no symptoms they're asymptomatic, uh, walking the streets and to be opening and to be forcing states by job owning to open prematurely before all the data is, is at a point where it deserves to be paid attention to, um, to let people feel free to open and shop and walk the streets and 
go to a restaurant, whatever it might be. Um, you know, so so much so much of the politics of the day are, are really are really in play here. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what's what's fascinating to me is that David Paleologus pointed out that there really is a distinction a distinction line between the the red hats and the blue hats, the red states and the blue states, uh, about how they take on this virus. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by Donald Trump's five o'clock or six o'clock everyday press conferences, which he turns into rallies to rile up his home base, his supporters, and get them to do such things as, you know, free states by opening them up and having them create rallies in front of state houses of Democratic governors. I mean, it just, it's crazy. I know, too, that we're going to be hearing more uh, about the finger-pointing effect. Who's responsible for bringing the virus to America? Where did it really start? Was it homegrown? Was it initiated by the Chinese purposefully? You're going to be hearing about the Chinese a lot during the remaining days of this political campaign, where Donald Trump and Republicans will be pointing the finger of blame to China, forcing people to say, at least attempting to force people to think, that it wasn't Donald Trump Trump who wasn't providing leadership. It was the Chinese who either discovered it on their properties or created it in their laboratories and brought it around the world. Um, and that they're to blame, and they should have given full warning that it was coming. It's a lot of hogwash. Um, but well, I mean, it will be part of the debate. At the beginning of this, um, including in tweets, uh, he very publicly applauded China for their efforts, said they were doing a great job. Um, so, you know, we're, and it's no surprise to see the change in narrative um, as this has gone along. And he also went from saying, I'm going to make all of the decisions about when the country is going to reopen to then passing it down to governors. Um, my guess is probably so as to escape some culpability, which politically um has its benefits. But then as soon as he sort of gave away that power, quickly has tried to take it back um, to your earlier point of motivating people to have rallies and, and protests to open up their states where, where they haven't been. Um, and his, his five o'clock or evening briefings every day, certainly, you know, I don't think bring the level of comfort that people want to see from their president uh, during a during a crisis like this. No, and it goes further than that. I agree. It goes further than that, you know, where he's now blaming, along with Mitch McConnell, the states who have who have not run their governments appropriately, have overspent. Now they're asking governments, the federal government, to bail them out. You know, Chris Cuomo said that this pandemic is going to cost the state of New York $61 billion more than it had been budgeted for causing a strain on state police, health providers, school teachers, frontline folks that need it, and they need to be helped. Um, And yet McConnell will tell you, especially the Democratic-led, gubernatorially-led states have been mismanaged, overspending, and it's just not true. It's not factual, and it's not true. Every one of them has had a balanced budget. By law, they have to have balanced budgets. And you know, just the rhetoric, the narratives are so negative, so harmful 
uh, to the American marketplace, but all in the interest of saving a Senate and saving the presidency of the United States. Um, anyway, I, I, I just I just think it's really too bad. I think I think the message points from the Republicans and Democrats are going to be, as I said, casting blame and placing blame appropriately, pointing figures on the part of the Republicans because they don't want to share the blame for lack of leadership or how they heard about this virus and what they did once they did hear about the virus to combat it. Um, it's it's uh, it's going to be a strange year, a strange year. The president kind of cooped up in a White House. Only the only the only outlet he has are those afternoon, late afternoon rallying cries that he calls updates from the Coronavirus Advisory Board, when in effect that's for two minutes and for the other half hour, it's him blazing away at the at all of his enemies. You know, the, the fake news, the press corps, the Democrats in Congress, the misled states with, with Democratic governors. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And yet they give it airtime. Um, and the Democrats kind of hunkering down, trying to do a job, putting a another stimulus package together and being criticized mm-hmm. for, you know, putting a package of, of trickery together, a package of overspending together, a, you know, a package. It, it's just ridiculous rhetoric. And I'm not saying that as a Democrat. I'm saying it because I read the newspapers. I pay attention to what's going on online. I hear from doctor and physician friends and front, uh, you know, people who are on the front lines because we have them in our office married to them. We have them you know, in our families, uh, we have these folks who let us know what's going on, what the truth is and what our needs are mm-hmm. all the time just to kind of break through, you know, the political, the political no nonsense, uh, nonsense that, that keeps kind of getting piped in after six o'clock at night or after five o'clock at night by these so-called advisory board conference calls. Anyway, um, I think, I think I've gone on my long harangue enough. What do you think? <laughs> You should do what I do and, um, you know, stop tuning in. It's, uh, it's, it's been freeing to me uh, not to tune in. I follow the coverage, um, but the few times that I still every now and again go and say, you know what, I'm going to watch today. Um, it, it doesn't, it's just, it's so outrageous and, and disappointing time and time again, because you yep. just, we need true leadership right now um for our country also for the also for the world uh and it's just certainly not what's being delivered on the evening news every day yeah but here we are here we are hey there'll be a brighter day yes there will thanks very much On behalf of all of us here at O'Neill and Associates, we hope you and your families are staying safe and healthy. We're proud to continue our work during this time and we'll continue doing everything we can to keep you updated. For daily city, state, and federal updates on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, please check out our website where updates are posted every morning. OA on Air is produced and edited by Ashley Lockin and Catherine O'Brien. Talk to you next week. As a reminder to our listeners, OA On Air is currently being recorded remotely.